y'all. Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're going to be talking the migrant caravan down in Tijuana with journalist Ryan Mena. Uh, Ryan's a very young journalist, uh, so we'll be talking a little bit about the media entrance into that and what it's like being down there as both an activist and a journalist. But before we get into that, how are you doing today, Ryan? Doing a bit well. I've been smoking a lot down there since the cigarettes are so cheap, so but got a bit of a cough, but besides that, pretty good. Well, so let's get started uh, with the basics. Uh, how did you end up going down to Tijuana? Like, was this an assignment that you chose? Were you given it? Like, how did you end up doing this work? Um, well, with my newspaper that I write for, I basically pitch assignments and whatever sounds interesting or I want to go do, I just do myself. Mm-hmm. And um, why Tijuana? Because this whole migrant caravan situation started becoming like big news and like I heard they might be coming soon and whatnot. So um, I've been going down five weekends in a row and the first weekend I went, um, like the majority of them hadn't gotten down there Mm -hmm. yet, but I knew they were coming so I just kind of wanted to get like, just go about the scene and see generally of the land and how things are going. And what were things like that first weekend? Was there a lot of things set up in preparation for them? Was there a lot of border security? Were the shelters set up? Like, kind of give us that that lay of the land. Mm-hmm. So at the time when I went down the first week, Benito Juarez Sports Complex was the largest migrant shelter until uh, three weeks later it got flooded because of the rains and whatnot. But the first time I went down there, that was the largest migrant shelter. And there were, it's um, mainly outdoors. It's like a sports complex. So it has like... Um, like a baseball field and like other like little areas and then an indoor kind of gym area which is where the mothers and young children stayed um and that was packed too they had a lot of sleeping mats so luckily and um but outside of it it was jam-packed with like tons of people a bunch of kids like people of all ages and everything like that but it seemed relatively controlled there amongst i mean relative to all the chaos going on and whatnot but at that time, things were just getting started with this whole situation down in Tijuana. So I guess um, since the stadium is uh, city-owned or state-owned, whatever, they uh, opened it up when a lot of them came down. And a lot of people brought donations down themselves to help feed them and whatnot. So it was pretty mellow that first time, but mm-hmm. a bunch of chaos amidst all that. I, I was going to say, you posted some really dramatic video of one of the marches to the border. Can you tell us a little bit about how that developed and what it was like for you to be sort of at the vanguard of that? Because you were you were pretty close to the front of that march, um, from what I understand. Yeah, the one on November 25th, I think that was my second week down there. Um, but that, oh man, should I start from the beginning? <laughs> there was yes, a, quite the day. Wow. Okay, so the day before, I was at Benito Juarez. It was still open at the time, and I was talking to the people that were staying in there, and one of them said that something was happening the next morning around 5 a.m. and whatnot, that she was going to go to El Chaparral, which is the bridge which leads to the port of entry. Mm-hmm. This is for the, the walking entrance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. And so I was like, okay, it sounds interesting. I'm going to wake up early and go do that. And then I heard from other people that there was going to be a march later on that day. Um, so it wasn't at 5 a.m., but... I was there, like, since 5, or I was there at, like, yeah, I arrived there at 5, and then I heard a lot of people were just going to, like, migrants were going to eat up in Juarez and then start the march. So they started right there. They all gathered with all their signs and Honduran flags and whatnot, and then headed towards El Chaparral, which was, which they were then met by Mexican federal police with riot gear. And I saw that and I was like, okay, I'm going to go run ahead so I can like get like a good spot to like shoot at and whatnot. And um, 
I was surprised as how the Mexican police treated me as the press. I wasn't sure how the laws were there and how different they were from here. But they, like, let me through the police signs and whatnot. But that was only the beginning of a really hectic day. The police line didn't move at all. The march moved around the police line. And they started running towards um, another point of entry, which is where, like, also you walk through. And there was about maybe 2,000 people that were at the march that day of migrants. And there was tons, tons of press, too. But, oh, man, a lot of them, we went... Through, ran through the Tijuana Riverbed because they were just like there were so many people and so little cops and they kept on trying to block them and whatnot but they kept on running around them it was kind of funny but then a lot of people or about maybe a hundred migrants started running towards the San Ysidro border like the vehicle lanes and whatnot and I was like oh man this might get really bad because U.S. Border Patrol like started lifting their guns up to them and the Mexican Federal Police were kind of I guess, like, kind of, it seemed like they were over at that point because they were kind of just like, yeah, go, whatever. They didn't really do much. But things really started getting hectic when they turned around from the vehicle lane and headed towards Tecate, Mexico, which is just the next city over from Tijuana eastbound. And I was just running with them uh, along the border wall, and I wasn't sure when I was going to stop or whatnot. And about maybe an hour-ish of running or trying to keep up with them, um, I forgot what happened first, but some people started climbing over the wall because mm. I guess they, I mean. And, and when you say wall, this isn't like a large cement wall. This is kind of a, it's a fence with large. It's uh, very rusty. Yeah, <laughs> large steel beams. So you can see through it. Like you yeah. can see the U.S. from the, the Mexico side. Um, you could see when the U.S. Border Patrol was were getting closer with their guns and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And I was telling them, like, don't go over because they have their guns pointed up. And I, of course, didn't want anyone to get shot. And whatnot. Um, but one thing led to another, and U.S. Border Patrol then started shooting uh, pepper spray at everyone, tear gas, and rubber bullets. And then when they started shooting the first time, a bunch of the migrants that hopped over the fence or jumped over the fence started coming back and running. But some didn't, and about 42, I believe, got caught and arrested and were then deported back to the country that they fled from. And what kind of, were the police firing live ammunition, rubber bullets? What, what was the U.S. authorities' response? They used rubber bullets. I saw one of them. I, there was someone that got shot maybe like five feet away from me. Yeah, and they showed me the bullet, and it was like a rubber bullet. It was like black and red or whatnot. But yeah, getting tear gas and pepper sprayed is no fun. And that, yeah, I wasn't sure. When I first heard the gunshots, I wasn't sure what they were shooting, of course. So I just, like, thought the worst and, like, whatnot. But then everyone started running back towards the Tijuana Riverbed, which is when U.S. Border Patrol launched a bunch more pepper spray canisters, which then hit a young girl. And I'm not sure if it's confirmed as of now or not, but I've heard that she passed away or is either in critical condition from being shot with the pepper spray canister by U.S. Border Patrol. I believe from what I remember from the reporting, she did go to hospital. I don't know. I, I never, because on the day of, it was reported that she died, but then that was, was changed, I believe, later. But she was severely injured because, as you saw, these munitions burn very hot. Um, when when you were with the, the group as they were approaching the border, and even when you were leaving, do you feel like the they were prepared for the resistance that they were going to meet? Like, did you think that they had any idea of how the U.S. would respond? Not at all. Mm-hmm. Not at all. These, I mean, these people at the time, and even still now, a lot of them or most of them don't know 
what the steps are to cross to the border legally or what the steps are to claim asylum and whatnot. Because, I mean, even if they, they even if they're on, they make it onto U.S. soil and they surrender, them, surrender themselves up to immigration, they can claim asylum by doing it that way. But DHS emailed me in a statement because I emailed them asking like, hey, like, do you have any numbers on this or whatever? And they said that they skipped the step where um, they would let them kind of get themselves up for immigration and then just deported them instead. Because they said they didn't have the resources at the time. Hmm. So they're saying basically we don't have enough people to process these documents or uh, to process these people and like give them legitimate asylum claims. Yeah, for that, the people that got caught that day, the 42. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for the people who are still like at the shelters, the people who are still arriving, do you think they have a clear idea of what to expect? Are there people on the ground helping them kind of figure out what this process is going to be? Yeah, I think more kind of know what's going on and what the steps are. But even so, if uh, someone has an asylum case number, they tell them to come back like in a month Mm. for their number to maybe be called. Mm. And I also heard this past weekend that only 40 percent of asylum cases, case numbers that are called if people actually show up for them because they don't know when to come back. Or, for example, like the new largest migrant shelter in Tijuana is called El Baratal. It used to be like a a music festival club, whatnot, um, but it's about 10 miles southeast of the border, and there's no public transportation that takes people to and from there. And it's a seven-hour walk, so people that are staying there and have asylum case numbers, it's going to be a bit of a hassle for them to get to the border to wait to see if their asylum number is called. And how have you seen uh, the group of migrants change as you've been going down? Because more people have been arriving from more countries. Uh, you mentioned the, the first group you were with was mainly Hondurans. Um, how is the makeup of the, the caravan changing? Uh, I mean, there's still more arriving and whatnot. Um, but a lot of them that I've spoken to that I met, like the first couple weeks I was there, some left back to Honduras. Mm because they, I guess, maybe maybe not just lost hope, but, like, just didn't know, didn't think they had a good chance at seeking asylum or to present their case Mm -hmm. and whatnot. But more legal aid is definitely needed down there, and especially with unaccompanied minors and people or children that are under the age of 18, of course, and whatnot. um, That's another ballgame because they need sponsors in the U.S. and whatnot to take them if they do present themselves up for... um, an asylum case. And what does the makeup look like of the people who are staying at the shelters at this point? And I know this is asking a lot because there are thousands of people, but what's your experience been uh, meeting and talking with folks? Um, it ranges. A lot of families, a lot of kids, um, a lot of adult men, but just a lot of children out in the streets still in front of Benito Juarez. People, hundreds of people are still camped outside of there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are kids and like in the nighttime, it gets cold and it's not the safest neighborhood in Tijuana, especially. And recently I've heard that like people have been bringing drugs. They're not part of the caravan, but like other people from Tijuana and gang stuff has been going on there late at night, which makes it even more dangerous for people staying there. Yeah, there was a report I was reading today um, about uh, two youths who were uh, murdered outside of Benito Juarez uh, in an attempted robbery and a third got away. Do you feel like it's safe there? Do the people who are staying at the shelters feel safe? I do not th- believe I would not feel safe there at nighttime. I mean, in the daytime, it's I don't feel completely safe, but enough to be there and whatnot. But in the nighttime, I definitely would not go there alone. And I just can't imagine how those people must feel. But luckily, um, a new shelter or warehouse turned shelter 
opened up in the past week, I believe, which is about half a block away. Mm. But it's already f- completely filled, and there's still hundreds outside of the camp on the street in front of Benito Juarez. Uh, now, obviously, um, it's kind of hard to know what the Mexican government's thinking or what their ne- their policies are. But how do you feel their response has been? Like, do you feel like they're adequately responding as best they can? Do you feel like they're falling short? Um, I think, well, they keep on giving people camping out in front of Benito Juarez eviction notices, but they keep on like kind of moving it back and whatnot. So I'm not sure what that tactic really is, but I think they need to do more with sheltering these people, especially if they're trying to um, go to the port of entry where asylum numbers are called every morning. The Baratel, that's really far. They need to open more shelters that are closer and more accessible for people so they can do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's talk a little bit more about the security situation, because you were telling me yesterday there was kind of a scary incident that went down when when you were there last night. So tell us a little bit about uh, what happened and, like, do you think this is speaking to larger trends that we'll see more of? Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Last night, I was coming back from Tijuana to L.A., and I was going through the San Ysidro port of entry with one of my friends, and she's um, been involved down there, like, organizing and whatnot for the caravan in support of them. And um, we, when we uh, passed through the first person in line of chain of events, when you go through the border back to the U.S., he wrote up a secondary, what's it called again? Secondary inspection. Yeah, secondary inspection, that orange form. And I was like, all right, here we go. This is going to be great. Because you hadn't you hadn't been stopped before in, in your previous travels. Nope, mm. I have not. Mm-hmm. Not once. I've never had any problems crossing back. This is the first time. And so we pull over. Me and my friend are like, all right, like this should be fast, I would assume, because everyone else I was watching get in their car expected. It took like five minutes or whatnot. But then I started noticing as time went on, like, something's up. Like, this isn't, why is this taking so long? Why are we, like, you know, not being paid attention to by CBP? And then they're like, all right, step out of your car. And I do. And they check everything, every nook and cranny of my car very thoroughly. Like, they weren't doing this to anyone else that they were checking and the cars next to Because I was watching them, too, and comparing what they were doing and how they were treating me versus them. And they're, they seemed like they were looking for something to get me on anything at all and then after that uh they got a canine unit in my car and i was like oh right well what if i was like allergic to dogs like what, if, what happens in that situation you know but that happened and i was like it was maybe it was about 30 minutes into this check now and i still hadn't been let go they still had my and my friend's identification and then a lady walks over and she's like hey can i speak to you and i was like okay and i get back out of my car and she's like, okay, let's come over here. And I walk like 10 feet from my car. And she's like, so like, what are you doing down here? And like, starts questioning me and whatnot. I'm like, yeah, I'm uh, just visiting some friends down here in Tijuana. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she asked a few more questions. And then I had a theory why what was happening was happening. Mm-hmm. And then the next question she asked just confirmed it all. She then asked, so what's your involvement with the migrant caravan? And that was, like, such a surreal moment. I was just like, wow, this is really happening. And I was like, well, like, what do you mean? Like, I've been here documenting stuff. She's like, well, like, are you part of any riots or, like, any marches and whatnot and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, I'm there documenting stuff and whatnot. And, of course, I didn't want to say, give her any, too much information about anything. Mm -hmm. But that was just, like insane she's like oh yeah like what do you think about the people staying down there do you think they're being treated well like do they need anything and whatnot and I was like well like 
I'm sure they'd like permanent housing. Like, that would help them. <laughs> yeah. And she just kept on questioning me. And, like, the way she was asking the questions, like, she was really trained for this. Mm-hmm. And um, she asked me, what else did she ask me? Oh, yeah. Then she told me and my friend later on. Also, she questioned us separately. Of course. Which is really, yeah. And I found out when I got back in my car that some guy was questioning her while I was being questioned. And then she got questioned by the same woman. Mm-hmm. And then she, the lady that both questioned us, she basically told us that she was called in from, like, another department to question us. Interesting. Did she say what department she's with? She said, uh, what was it? And, uh, starts with an A, maybe, uh, non-administrative. I forgot, but I need to look that up. But, yeah, different department, and that's why they had to call her over, and she, like, came over to the entry point to do that. Because I was asking her, like, why are we being questioned? Like, how do you guys choose these quote-unquote random searches, which is bullshit? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I also have to ask you, because you hadn't uh, committed any crimes while you were down there crossing the border, doing support down there. None of these are illegal, right? Like, nothing that you were doing should bring uh, uh, any sort of criminal attention or stop you, an American citizen, from crossing the border. Uh, What do you think their motivation was? Like, if you have to guess. This is, I think, definitely politically motivated, and I think another thing that made them check my stuff even more is the guy, when he searched my bag, he saw my press pass and everything, so I feel like that had to do with all of everything that transpired last night, and I definitely think it was an intimidation tactic that they're trying to use, but it was just so surreal. It was like, wow, this is, like, you hear about all this stuff and, like, the feds, like, surveilling people or whatnot and trying to silence the voices of those trying to speak up about atrocities going on in the world but like when it happens you're just like wow this is crazy i could not believe that happened to me me and my friend that i was with we were just talking about like the whole ride home it yeah it was insane and this isn't the first time you've attracted attention from dhs because when we did occupy ice la mm-hmm. uh there was a dhs officer that apparently uh began uh tracking you online how does that feel Oh my gosh, I don't, it's, I don't know, my friend jokingly said last night, like, well, you know, you're doing, doing a good job when they're, like, tracking you or, like, targeting <laughs> you and what, and I was like, yeah, that's, like, one way to look at it, which is funny, but it's just, like, um, so officer, DHS officer Jason Lind, oh, that guy, he called me by my Facebook name, which is my name nowhere else on any media platforms I have. And luckily, I was filming while he said that. I was like, well, this is perfect. Got it on video, too. But that was, it was just so surreal because, I mean, ever since Occupy ISLA, I've learned a lot about uh, federal surveillance and just police surveillance in general. And I, like, act now as if, like, everything I do on my phone or anything like that can be seen by them or whoever. But it's just so surreal when it's just, like, proven or, like, they blatantly communicate that, yeah, we're looking at your stuff. And we're not afraid of letting you know, and we're going to continue doing it and whatnot. Mm -hmm. It's just like, wow, it's so surreal, but it's not going to stop me. Yeah. No, I I, I was going to ask, but it's good that you're not being intimidated. I I did want to ask to kind of... Uh, switch gears to talk about the rest of the media because the first couple of weekends there was a lot of media attention national and international Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like that pace is kept up do you see as much press on the ground now do you feel like there is a good u.s media presence down there i feel like more more attention still needs to be down there i mean this is only the beginning of this whole issue down there and whatnot 
and who knows what else is going to happen. And I think it needs more attention to what's going on. And there's some reporters down there, whatnot, many independent media outlets or journalists and whatnot, but there's definitely more attention that's needed down on what's going on in Tijuana. Why do you think they've fallen off? Like, do you think that for larger media outlets, they just feel like the story isn't sexy anymore, that Americans only care about this for a couple of weeks? Do you think the reporters have gotten bored? Like, what what do you think is driving that? I think many mainstream media outlets have kind of been like, all right, this is cycled through like the top headline stories and whatnot. Because, like, nothing humongous or any, like, people aren't being shot with pepper spray canisters anymore and whatnot. But that doesn't mean, like, this isn't important or deserves attention because it does. And it's still happening and it's going to continue to happen. Uh, and what has your experience been with other media down there? I, I assume that you all talk, that you all, like, share some space. Um, has most of the media, you know, what do you feel that their entrance has been into this story? I think that ones that I've consistently seen down there are doing it out of genuine reasons and that they actually care about this stuff and not just like mainstream media like oh it's not headline news anymore but the ones that you keep on seeing down there back to back to back week after week like that kind of uh builds some trust between us like because we know why we're doing what we're doing and it's not just for the sake of a headline story or whatnot Mm -hmm. um but yeah everyone's really helpful and we all know why we're down there that's probably a good feeling definitely because yeah it just makes just makes you feel like what you're doing matters and like you're not the only one that cares because sometimes that can make you go a little crazy <laughs> but yeah and what about media personalities that like aren't as friendly have you encountered any sort of like right-wing journalists people that are opposed to the the migrant caravan anything of that sort um well i interviewed paloma for trump a, couple, ah. a few weeks ago actually when um i was down by benita juarez i i saw her down and i was like oh my gosh, that's Paloma for Trump. I need to interview her. Real quick, for people who may not know, uh, explain Paloma for Trump real quick. So Paloma for Trump is this Latina woman who lives in San Diego and she goes back and forth between Tijuana and San Diego to do who knows what or whatnot. But when she goes down to Tijuana, she live streams a lot of the caravan related situations down there and like kind of narrates in her own saying whatever that has no informational or actual content to it but she's not for the migrant caravan she said that they just want ebt and free stuff and whatnot and it's amazing how those people just never know the law like that's always one thing where i'm like you can just look this up and know that exactly what you're saying is is 100 false sorry to to break it off there but it just amazes me that such easily accessible information they just refuse to look at and yeah it baffles me she has a huge following and all these people are like yeah good job paloma just like what is i yeah it baffles me what was she like to interview she was nice she was nice to me, but she knew what not to say to a reporter for sure. Because what she said to me in the interview was a lot different than what she was saying in her live streams or whatnot. How so? Like, uh, for example, on her live stream, she'd be, she would say things like, they just want free stuff and like, why do they want this land or blah, 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 blah. And, but to me, she'd be like, yeah, I just really care, really care about these people down here and like, they're not safe. The street, the street isn't safe for them. And like, they need help and blah, 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 blah. And huh. yeah, does not match up. Yeah, that's kind of weird, especially since she's broadcasting and it's publicly accessible. Um, what do you think she's trying to do with that? Like if you're putting on your reporter hat, what do you think her game is there? That she doesn't want to give any reporters anything they can make her look bad with. 
outside of going to her live stream. Yeah, because then she, I don't know, it's, I just think that she doesn't want to give anyone any content for them to use a painter in a bad light, because I don't think that she sees her live streams as painting her in a bad light, because she, I think, genuinely believes it. Interesting. Uh, have there been like other uh, sort of right wing media or journalists that you see down there that have uh, as consistent a presence? Um, no, she's been the only one. I've seen a couple others, but only once or twice. She's okay. been. I've seen her down there three or four times. Okay, yeah, living in San Diego, it's pretty easy to get down there. Um, when it comes to uh, your entrance into this, because you're a pretty young journalist. Um, What's it like for this to be, like, such a big story this early in your career? Like, how do you feel about that? Um, it's kind of overwhelming sometimes, especially after that one Sunday where that tear gas and pepper spray and rubber bullets were shot. I, like, wasn't sure. I was just like, I have all this content, and, like, what do I do with it? Because it's just, I've never been in that situation where I've been in such a, like, because that was international news when they were doing that, and I was, like, right there. So that was kind of just, like bit overwhelmed but like really like wow this is what I want to do for the rest of my life and this is why I do what I do. What kind of advice would you give to other people who are thinking about getting into journalism or people who are in college and thinking about like this is what I want to do for my career like what would you warn them about and what would you tell them to embrace? I would say that this industry is very competitive but and that there are a lot of people doing it but a lot of them aren't doing it for the right intentions or that they don't necessarily really care about the core of journalism. And if you do and you keep on working for it, and if you love it, of course, too, then you're just going to love what you're doing. But it's going to be a bit difficult in the beginning, but you really need to network, 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 Mm -hmm. and just stick to your journalistic integrity. And yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be a little bit of an abstract question, but let's let's talk about journalistic ethics a little bit. Mm -hmm. How do you tell a story like this that's so emotionally charged without exploiting the people you're reporting on? And I know you may not have a perfect answer for this. It's a conversation you have in all of your pieces, but how do you approach this in a way where you don't feel bad about telling these stories? Mm -hmm. Well, I give um, the people that I talk to down there, the affected people, the migrants in the caravan, I interview them so I could tell a story from their voice and not mine. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's not my thing to like yeah this is the narrative that I chose or whatever but kind of gather a bunch of interviews from people down there and then yeah just have the story be told from their voice and me just kind of be like the one with the pencil writing it mm-hmm. in a way. And people want to talk to you, I assume, like people who have made this journey that are, are here trying to make this huge life change. Are they excited to talk to the press? Do they want their story out? Are they fearful of Americans of the press? Like, how are they approaching you? A lot of them are really nice to me, actually. But I don't think they're, I don't know, I think they're especially nice to me just because I'm like a really friendly and bubbly person. Um, so it's really easy for them to talk to me. They, a lot of them always approach me. I'm just like, yeah, I'm part of the press. Like, can I interview you? And Nine times out of ten, they're like, yeah, totally. But sometimes when I do interview some of them, um, they can't have their photos taken because the country they fled from, um, such as Honduras, and the first time I went down there, I interviewed this uh, man from Honduras, and he said that he couldn't have his picture taken because he was being persecuted by gangs down there, and they were looking for him, so that if his picture got out there and they knew where he was, they'd come after him. Mm Mm-hmm. And that, that tracks with a lot of stories that we've heard um, that, that folks and, and we here at Ground Game have helped uh, people who have left uh, not in a migrant caravan, but have come seeking asylum for like the same sort of reasons. What 
what do you think is causing a lot of these folks to decide to pick up everything, leave it behind, and make this like 1,500-mile trek? Um, is it just security and safety? Is it economic opportunity? There's a lot of cross-narratives we're getting in America. Which one do you think is more true? I think, I mean, it varies case by case because I have met people that are fleeing literal death and persecution by gangs and whatnot. And there's some people also uh, coming here because there's no work down there and they're starving and they can't feed their families. So it varies case by case, but all of them that I've heard are very valid reasons to why they left their countries. And I mean, I'm sure it's not an easy decision to make to pack up your whole life, your kids and whatnot, and travel mostly by foot like thousands of miles like that's not an easy decision to make no one that's yeah no one's gonna do that unless they really had to and once they get up here and we've talked a little bit about the needs but i kind of want to dial in on that what are the things that are most needed right now like as far as supplies um are people able to be like are they do they have enough food do they have enough water do they have the basic necessities of life Mm -hmm. well at benito juarez um people that are still camped outside of there there are some people coming from Enclave Caracol, which is an anarchist anarchist cafe down in Tijuana that serves two or three meals a day. They cook inside there and feed the people who are there and then also deliver food to people at Benito Juarez Mm -hmm. since that's no longer a real shelter anymore. But yeah, I mean, volunteers down there on the ground are needed to help just like feed people and serve food and cook and whatnot. But as far as supplies, Something um, interesting and cool that I um, heard that they needed was English learning books. Because when they do um, come to the U.S. and whatnot, they want to learn English and like to get a job and whatnot. So that's something that's needed. And underwear and socks and men's clothes, actually. Mm. They're low on men's clothes. And uh, this actually turns me to a question I hadn't even thought of. This was a blind spot. The community response in Tijuana. What are the people who live in Tijuana? How are they responding? Are you know? I know there's been some press about uh, people kind of becoming xenophobic towards the migrants. Um, but what do you feel like the community response in Tijuana is overall? And are there groups that are stepping up to help, like this anarchist collective? Um, I think. I mean, there's a broad range of how people who live in down Tijuana feel about them. But, I mean, I think generally a lot of people don't know exactly what to make of the situation because they hear a lot of conflicting reports and some of them think that, like, they're dangerous or whatnot. And But most of them that I've encountered seem to be, like, cool with it for the most part. And, let's see, other... Um, collectives, you said that. Yeah, or other just like community groups. You know, you you mentioned this anarchist collective that's feeding people. Are there other like spontaneous grassroots efforts to help? I'm not sure if Border Angels is a grassroots organization, but it's an organization that they have a mini shelter by Las Playas in Tijuana down by the beach and the border wall where Friendship Park is. And yeah, they have a little shelter that houses, I think, 60 or 80 people. And they're taking donations all day, every day, whatever they can. Um, and Clavi also accepts donations, too. And um, people at Albaratel can drop off donations there, too, whatnot. But I'm not sure how that situation's working because of the high police presence there. And I heard they're in control of a lot of the donations. So That's the Mexican uh, police? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. correct. The federal and municipal police. Okay. Um, and what what's it like going to the border now? Like if you had to describe sight and like somebody who hasn't seen what the, the Tijuana border crossing looks like now, how would you describe that to someone? There's a lot of barbed wire, <laughs> rows and rows and rows. And in, in places that's just like, why, why would that be there? Like that's such a waste. 
Um, but it's really, really surreal to go past those gates. It's like a completely another world down there. And it's crazy because there's San Diego, which is U.S. and whatever, and then there's Tijuana. And those two are so close yet so opposing worlds. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's weird coming back from having a day in Tijuana and spending a day at different various shelters and seeing all these migrants and seeing what they need and whatnot. And then later on in the night, going to San Diego where everyone's just fine, you yeah. know? But yeah. they're like miles from each other. Yeah, and there's an outlet mall like literally right across the border. It's a, mm-hmm. a weird juxtaposition down there. It always has been. Uh, yeah. But now it seems like it's a, it's more starkly drawn. Exactly, yeah. So it's, it's definitely really surreal, but it really puts things into perspective, especially with uh, the privilege that one has living in the United States. And it's just like things here that a lot of people think are problems and whatnot aren't at all when you compare things down there and whatnot people are just trying to survive mm-hmm. and so uh in the future what are your plans i assume you're still going to be going down to, to tijuana um hopefully producing more content like what do you have planned in the the immediate and kind of medium future i'm definitely going to be going back down to tijuana a lot this winter since i'm on winter break I want to go down there maybe for two weeks at a time at a certain point, but I'm just going to continue covering this because I know that this is only the beginning and there are a lot more things that are going to be happening down there. And there's just so many different things happening down there all at once. It's There's always something to cover. Mm -hmm. And where can folks keep up with your coverage? You can find my articles at thecorsaironline.com or on my Instagram at (laughs) R-Y-U-H-N-N-N. Or my (laughs) Facebook, (laughs) Rybred. And uh, so last question. Um... What kind of message do you want to send to like the average American that might like stumble onto this podcast and listen? What would you like to tell them if you could tell them one thing about this situation? That no mother would just pick up her child and cross Central America for no reason. These people deserve a chance at living. I mean, everyone deserves a chance at life. And just think about it. What if you were in their situation? What would you do in their shoes? If you can even imagine that, because that's pretty hard to imagine. But yeah. Yeah, it, the privilege of living in America can be very blinding. Um, yes. And, you know, the, the term first world problems, as much as it's an Internet joke, is very real. And we tend to, to value things a little bit differently when you have as much surplus as we do here. Uh, and I, I find it very strange that people are afraid that people who have nothing and are willing to re- literally risk their life to achieve something are coming to take stuff from you when you already have more than you could ever possibly need. It's It's something about the American mindset that will always... Uh, continue to baffle me, especially in situations like this, when it's like there's so much need literally right across a fence there. Like you can reach your hand out and help people. Exactly. These people are they just want a chance at living. Mm-hmm. And that's something I mean, they deserve, of course. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with this situation. All right. Well, thank you very, very much for stopping in. And also, thank you very much for what you're doing down there, because like having been a veteran of several direct actions and like borderline riots and stuff, it's uh, very scary when the authorities are shooting things at you. It's very scary when you're around a group of people who may uh, succumb to panic very quickly. That takes a lot of bravery and courage, and it's very hard to keep your wits about you. And like you're doing a really good job of that from what I can tell. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. 